When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate, the dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter with Houston Chronicle. And I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about roommate living. Well, it's not just any type of roommate living. It's actually co-living. We'll talk about this niche housing type in Houston that's been growing, a couple fancy new co-living projects that are underway in the city, and a unique co-living platform called PadSplit that focuses more on affordable housing later in the podcast. But first, I just wanted to kind of chat with you, Rebecca, about like if you could recall when you moved to Houston uh-huh. and you had to find a place yeah, and you were trying to find a roommate, what was that process like for you? So I didn't have a roommate when I moved, but I did when I moved to New York. Oh, okay. What was that like? I I did it through Craigslist. (laughs) And I uh, first was like, I talked to them on the phone. And then I was like, do you have any like people who used to live with you that I could talk to? And I talked to someone who used to live with them. And then I visited they were like they're they're a normal person. Yeah, yeah, they were like, (laughs) they were so nice to live with. I was like, okay. (laughs) And then I went to New York to like, just like check it out one more time because I was like a little bit nervous about it. And I remember showing up and, um, it was with this couple and, um, the guy was like, Oh yeah, I just came back from busking in the subway and he had just gotten like a loop pedal. Cool. And then they were both like raw vegans. And I was like, Oh, I, I, I just wanted the sort of like roommates who weren't grad school students because I was afraid I would get like sucked into this bubble and I wanted people who are like actually you were in grad school I was in grad school and I feel like you can just get into this like school bubble so I wanted some people who like actually lived in New York and had friends who weren't you know so it turned out okay (laughs) but I was that was how I went about it yeah (laughs) yeah I remember so I've always found roommates through um yeah like Craigslist Facebook friends or like you know yeah I've done through friends yeah, hasn't always I, worked out. Doug, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, my my husband Doug like found a roommate. I mean, maybe this was like seven, eight years ago. On I think he said he thinks he used roomie.com. Oh, I've heard but he of had that. to interview a bunch of people. Um, anyways, and it ended up being a good fit, and now we're really good friends with that person that was his roommate. <laughs> oh, nice. So I mean, yeah, like so I think in our situations we've had some good experiences mm-hmm. with the finding roommates online. Uh, but you know, it can be kind of a crapshoot for lack of a better oh, yeah. word. Wait, can I tell, <laughs> can I tell an online, a Craigslist roommate story? Sure. <laughs> so I know someone who moved to Chicago after college and she got a Craigslist roommate and the person was actually like super nice, whatever, but she was a nurse and it turned out she had a side gig and her Doing side what? gig was turning people's woman's placentas into like a pill that they could swallow and she would do it in their kitchen so she would come home with a placenta and she had like the setup on like the stove or whatever to like 
somehow turn it into something that you could put in a pill. And my friend was like, I, I was just like, you couldn't make this up. You couldn't make this up. Things it you would seems not like a think- biological health hazard. It seems I like know. a health hazard. It seems like a health hazard. I'm all for side hustles, but I have to admit that would make me uncomfortable. <laughs> So, I mean, over the last decade or so, there have been, you know, attempts to sort of streamline this process a bit more. Obviously, I mentioned there's uh, Rumi.com, there's a bunch of other sites like that, but there's also this uh, sector that has emerged that's almost like professional roommate housing uh, called co-living. It's a type of communal housing. Like, imagine if we were a single person moving to Houston now, uh, you know, we're not making like three figures and we're trying to find a room to rent maybe somewhere in like a cool area like downtown or Washington Ave area or Edo or Midtown or Montrose like maybe for under $1,200 or around there it it would actually be pretty hard right I mean average studios right now in Houston can be about a thousand dollars monthly but the prices can get a lot higher if you go to to specific neighborhoods it can be like 1300 just for Mm -hmm. a studio um, according to CoStar. But imagine if you could like walk into a place like you're new, you don't have any, you don't own a bunch of stuff yet. And this place is fully furnished. There's utilities, there's internet, maybe even there's like cleaning services that come in and like a cool like gym or something on site. And then you're getting all this for 15 to 20% below a market rate for a studio rental. So the only catch would be that you're living with strangers. That's kind of the concept behind co-living is it's, um, it, you know, has all these built-in amenities, it, but you are living with other people. The idea is that the property manager takes a lot of the hassle out of like finding a roommate, matching, vetting, income verification. Uh, you know, you don't have to bicker with them about splitting bills or if someone misses a, you know, misses rent one month and you, you know, you're, you don't have to foot their bill. And, you know, they, they do a lot of things like providing cleaning or basic living essentials in some of the um, nicer co-living developments. Uh, And so it's kind of like akin to like a college dorm or like a hostel, which a lot of co-living providers are probably like, not like me characterizing it that way. That's what I was thinking. So you have your own room. Do you have your own room? Yeah, you have so your you own have room, room, but you share the kitchen. You share the kitchen and living room. What about a lot of bathrooms? It, so that depends on the communities. A lot of the newer, nicer communities, you do get your own bathroom, which is nice. Yeah. Um. But you know, depending on where you go, maybe if it's an older community or something, or less less expensive, you might have like somewhat of a shared bathroom. It just depends. Um, in some of the ground up new projects, it is, you do get your own. Here's a little clip. I talked to an analyst from Cushman Wakefield about this growing sector. Her name is Susan Jarkson. She is a managing director at Cushman Wakefield, and this is how she describes co-living. This is an organized approach to roommate living. And so you don't have to wait to find two people or three people or one person to move in. You can move in singularly. And as you mentioned, if your roommate doesn't pay your rent, it doesn't affect you. For entry-level jobs or people new to, new to a city, you don't always have the time to go find an apartment, go rent furniture or buy furniture, or call a moving company, get your furniture all loaded up and shipped out, and then connect all the utilities, particularly Wi-Fi. Because you know, if you're starting a new job, you typically have two weeks to do that. And if you're starting a new job from New York to Houston or Houston to Denver or Denver to San Francisco, this is a great entry point for people. Susan estimates that, you know, she she studies niche apartment 
asset classes like micro units, co-living. She estimates that there is actually about 70,000 co-living beds that are like planned in the pipeline nationally. And eventually the co-living sector could account for like 1.5% of all the multifamily housing stock. So for perspective, that would be like over a million co-living units. And that's just at apartment communities with over like 50 units. Uh, So the co-living trend, you know, it kind of started in New York. It started in San Francisco, LA, Mm -hmm. these sort of more expensive markets. But over the years, it's been, especially in the last few years, it's been expanding in the South. You know, as we've seen this migration to the Sun Belt uh, from these coastal cities, they've kind of like taken, uh, co-living providers have sort of been following suit and and see the South as sort of a market where they can expand and sort of diversify their portfolio. So there's actually a bunch of co-living projects underway um, from like Florida, Arizona, Texas, Tennessee. I think that in the past, it was the case where some of our Sunbelt markets, the rents were still pretty cheap. So mm-hmm. it's almost like there might not have been that much built-in demand. But now as rents have gone up and there's inflation, uh, there's kind of more new sources of demand for co-living, I think, here. Um, so in Houston, there's two major co-living projects uh, that are being built from the ground up under construction. And those would be, uh, the biggest one is a 33-story tower with 646 beds wow. in the museum district. Yeah, and it's it's like a straight-up skyscraper. It's really swanky. It's by the X Company. Um, Susan describes the X Company as like sort of the Taj Mahal <laughs> of co-living companies. Um, and then there's another cool project um, that will actually have a mix of micro units and studios. So you could theoretically live alone in those. But then we'll also have like a 207 co-living beds. Um, and that's from the Shelter Companies, which is a Dallas arm of a real estate firm called Civitas Capital. And they're actually mm. working with Common, which is one of the biggest co-living property management companies in the in North America. So Common's going to be managing their community. It's called Uniti Montrose. It's in Montrose. And then alongside those ground up new projects, we have, you know, Pad Split, which is expanding more, um, which is a totally different model, but also co-living. We'll get more into that later. I have a question. What do leases look like? Could you do it for a short term or is it a year long lease? Like traditional? Yeah. So co-living, that is actually one of the selling points of co-living too, I guess I should mention is flexible short-term leases are quite common. Okay. Um, it, it started out, you know, with predominantly being shorter term okay. leases, like three months, six months, nine months. You know, I've talked to co-living renters. Actually, most of the co-living renters I've talked to all rented at a place for under a year. As the sector has matured, there's been more, uh, I think, push towards one-year leases. Hmm. Um, but it's not... It, you know, I mean, every property owner would prefer to have someone there commit longer. But yeah. I think that is one of the selling points and one of the things where it's like if you're moving, you know, you can kind of like suss out a city. Um, yeah, like <laughs> almost like what they call like a, what, what a corporate relocation, you know, like I can because I feel like sometimes when I moved to Houston, I moved before my furniture got here. Yeah. So that would be nice. I moved to Texas before my before all my stuff got here. Too. Yeah. I so something like this would be that. awesome. Or the other thing I hear about a lot is um, people coming here for the Texas Medical Center. So say like, oh, I yes. have a type of cancer that like I'm coming to Houston for and I'm coming from another country. And how am I going to set up utilities and get something where I can live for an undetermined number of months? You know, like it sounds like this would be 
really ideal. Like it would solve a lot of the problems. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's also traveling nurses. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. People on residency. Mm-hmm. So actual, you know, people, um, healthcare providers. And I, I'm, I am guessing that that's part of the reason why the Exco liked yeah. the area. Like they, you know, they always try to pick really cool areas for their projects. Like maybe an area you couldn't afford otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Susan kind of talks about, I have a couple more clips from her talking about how the sector has sort of changed. Mm -hmm. So the definition has certainly morphed over the last five years. It used to be that these co-living buildings were low-cost entry into markets with very bare-bones amenities or very um, stark surroundings. You know, now we've seen it mature over the last five years, and there's definitely uh, the concept of picking a lane, much like in hotels, you can either be the Motel 6 or you can be the Taj Mahal. So we've seen co-living operators and developers pick the lane they want to be in. Both have been successful. What I will say has also morphed is co-living has become a unit type as opposed to just a standalone building with nothing but co-living units in it. So typically today you see a building has studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, some penthouses and some co-living units in them, as opposed to three years ago, four years ago, it was a building of 100% co-living units. So that that's the case for uh, the the project in, in Montrose. You know, they'll have a mix okay. of unit types. And she was saying that, um, you know, that could be one way that the sector progresses and we see some increase in the amount of co-living units is that it could be like blended in as just like another housing type. I think predominantly right now, there's a lot of uh, projects that are like just co-living, but she's saying, you know, kind of the future could be, you might see an apartment complex where it's just, you know, you have your co-living studio, one bedroom, two, you know, all the way up. Yeah. It seems like it has to be built to be co-living though, right? You couldn't take an existing apartment complex because you need like a nice no, big common oh, kitchen. I mean, and No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are ways to turn existing places into co-living, which we can okay. get into. Um, but I think especially for these um, companies that, you know, want to charge maybe more premium rents, um, they are um, perhaps, you know, would prefer to just, like you said, have a space that was more designed for it. common areas like lounges. Yeah, 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 exactly. I remember WeWork being one of the companies that really wanted to get into it before everything went down with WeWork. Right. They had yeah. the we live yeah. and it was just like, oh, yeah, it's sort of a similar ethos to co-working, which is, I guess, why it's called co-living. We live is actually was actually supposed to be co-living. Um, we live shut yeah. down during the pandemic. That's kind of what what it was supposed yeah. to to be. And, you know, and that gets into a lot of these companies. There was kind of an explosion of co-living projects pre-pandemic. But as I said, a lot of these co-living providers had concentrated, and I'm talking about ground up co-living here, right? Mm -hmm. So the fancy projects, the new apartment construction, a lot of them had concentrated their portfolios in these expensive markets, uh, which also happened to be cities where there was a lot of coronavirus restrictions and there was sort of like this exodus of people that moved out um, of the city or didn't want to pay these expensive rents when like nothing was open. Right. So there was a dip in occupancy and it, it definitely hit the co-living sector pretty hard during the pandemic because uh, of where their portfolios were concentrated and also uh, just, you know, 
the idea of communal living when we're supposed to do social isolation. Like there was just a lot of things that I think, um, and, and, you know, a lot of these co-living providers were startups. So we saw a bunch of co-living providers uh, basically shut down or declare bankruptcy. We live being one of them, um, quarters, star city hub house, you know, other companies go in like common actually took control over a bunch of co-living properties in this time. And common's actually merging with, Europe's biggest co-living provider now called Habit. Common expects to be profitable by the end of the year. And co-living occupancy has, since the pandemic, it's rebounded. The rents are back up. So I think like that um, blow is kind of settling out more. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of this expansion into the South, my theory is that it could, the diversification could help <laughs> God forbid if we have like something like that in the future. Um, but, you know, it it could potentially help to diversify their portfolios more. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think that I had mentioned that, you know, affordability is an issue. But Susan also talked about like the lifestyle choice is also really appealing. And that's sort of agnostic, like uh, the lifestyle choice of meeting other people, living in a communal setting, like not having to worry, having more minimalists and being able to like pick up a move will sort of be appealing to some people, like regardless of the price. You mean like high end, sort of like how you see those movies, like the Wes Anderson movies or whatever, where someone's like living in a hotel, like they like that freedom. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely cheaper than living in a hotel or should be. Yeah, yeah. But you're saying there's a segment that would would that would appeal to you is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Here, here's a here's a clip from Susan again. And, you know, it used to be it was only in New York, San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, very high cost of renting. Now we've seen it, you know, in Chicago, Miami, for sure. Yes. Houston, Dallas, Denver, Phoenix, Tampa, because what we've seen is that the the demand for them is also a lifestyle choice demand not necessarily a rent cost only demand, right? Houston's a perfect example of that, uh, Marissa, because, you know, Houston rents compared to New York are fairly affordable. However, do you really want to rent a one bedroom house or a one bedroom apartment that's not near where you want to be? And do you want to furnish that whole thing? And do you want to go buy the blender and, you know, the couch and all of that stuff? Or would you rather live like this and feel like now I've got money to try instead of buying a couch, I'd rather go to Cartagena for the weekend. It's the same number, a couch or Cartagena. Uh, you know, a lot of these people would choose the trip to Cartagena. Like they're, they're more interested in spending their money on experiences rather than possessions. Um, and so she said, you know, that, that, that's like kind of a, a subset of, of renters that will sort of like always exist. The lifestyle choice is a, a big thing, but obviously, you know, the, the affordability, I think, especially for single people is important. Um, and that's where I wanted to get into pad split, which, um, you know, you had talked about, Rebecca, like, oh, doesn't this have to be new buildings? So pad split's a totally different model. Mm-hmm. They focus on using existing real estate. It's mostly single family rentals, okay. duplexes, fourplexes, and they turn them into co-living. Oh, okay. They already have like 585 co-living units here on the ground. Um, they're planning another 1,200. Um, the company has almost 7,000 co-living beds like nationally in Atlanta, Richmond, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, New Orleans, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Kansas City. 
PadSplit is focused on the more affordable housing end. The average renter for PadSplit pays just $729 a month. That includes utilities and internet. Um, in Houston, it's actually lower. It's like $667. So, and then if you're a renter there, you can also get like all these other perks. Like you can get Teladoc, like telehealth access. If you need help finding a job, they work with the job placement company. Um, they'll even like help you if you need help building credit. So they're catered towards, you know, low income renters who may not always have credit, may not have the best credit. And how they keep the the rents affordable is they work with existing real estate. They pair up with property owners. They also look hard at each, like, let's say you have a single family home that you know you want to rent out um, and you're like, okay, I have one empty bedroom. Well, Patsba can go in and, you know, turn that into a co-living type of unit, but they can also look at underutilized spaces. So like, think about like your living room or your family room or places that you don't really use. They can help you turn that into a living space, uh, but basically like consulting with you on like the things that need to happen to turn a living room into <laughs> a living quarter, you know, like adding a wall, a door, like, you know, it would take investment from the property owner, but you know, some, some, some spaces may take less investment um, than others, but then they, they go and they help market those. They help to market those spaces on their online platform, okay. which is sort of like, it looks like Airbnb or it's, it's similar to Airbnb. So here's a little. The vision is, is really to be able to have an offering for anyone that has space anywhere. I mean, for renting a room through the model to be as second nature as, oh, I need to go somewhere. I don't have a car. So let me call an Uber or a Lyft, right? I'd say the vision is a lot bigger than that. Our our beachhead market has been through investors. Those investors have been most attracted to the biggest delta between what they can earn today versus what they can earn through, through a fractionalized model. Uh, and yeah, the idea is, look, we have more residential square footage per person today than at any point in history. Uh, given what the uh, what the size of single family homes has grown to over the last sixty years, and relative to the fact that households have have declined, and you have more single person households, whether through aging boomers uh, or through the millennial generation and Gen Z, uh, than than ever before, and and the housing stock simply doesn't match up. So his idea is that you know we we actually have like all this excess space that people aren't using that we could turn into, you know, affordable mm. housing. And by the way, that's Atticus LeBlanc. He's the founder of Pads, but mm -hmm. so he has an interesting background. He actually started in traditional multifamily or traditional, like commercial real estate world. And he started working on like land deals and multifamily, but he always was sort of like interested in solving inequities. So he started to look at, you know, providing affordable housing um, using public uh, funds in Atlanta just after the Great Recession. Uh, but coming from the private world, he grew really frustrated quite quickly with how kind of clunky the funding process can be. And so he started doing some like affordable housing type of style projects on his own with like private funding. And he was like astonished to figure out like he could do using sort of like a private or pads, but type of model. He could like literally create hundreds of units in the same time it took him to do like a few dozen, like through the official kind of public housing um, sort of measures. So here's him talking a little bit about his background. I mean, I started as a public private partner with city of Atlanta uh, using federal funds in 2009. And I mean, I can still compare 
just the the brain damage of that capital A affordable housing system where you have tax credits or less brain damage in in certain aspects than others. But like the tax credit system generally is just incredibly difficult to to produce units in terms of the number and the cost uh, per dollar. And we're, we're still engaged in that business, not pad split directly, but I have another company that oh. capital A affordable housing developer, but it's, it's night and day in, in terms of what you're able to achieve that is effectively serving the same customer. So I'm kind of curious, giving your background, like you followed affordable housing and funding like a lot. I mean, what's your experience? Like how long does it take for like a project from like when they have the idea to like actually getting funding and being able to deliver it. I don't know what you've seen over the last few years. Oh yeah. I'm not sure what the average time is. Uh, did just do a story a few weeks ago, but it it was a little bit different. A pastor who wanted to build affordable housing took him like, I think decades between having the idea and lining up all the financing, but he wasn't a, you know, a developer by day. You know what I mean? Um, so it's really exciting that they can do it that quickly and that, um, you know, if there are enough units, then if you're having problems, you could easily move to another affordable unit. You know, that's huge. Um, mm. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. I guess just I'm thinking about from my perspective, I'm like, for some reason, like thinking about uh, these places built to be co-living and then these single family homes that are turned into co-living, I guess I would be, I almost have this feeling that like a home isn't public the same way that something with like 50 units is public. You know, like if I went mm-hmm. into the public space, I would feel some sort of, I, I would be like, oh, there's probably a manager somewhere on premises. There's a lot of people around. I feel like I would feel like a little bit safer than if I Uh, If the public space was the living room in a two bedroom house, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I'd be like a little bit like my my trust would need to be higher. You know, um, what does pad split say about like those types of. Well, I mean, they do um, the background checks Mm -hmm. um, for people and like the roommate vetting. So, I mean, the idea is that, you know, these are people that have been vetted. You know, if you have issues like you can move. Pad split is supposed to help with like kind of managing, you know, some roommate managing like sort of roommate relations helping. Um, But they are. There's definitely more safeguards than the Craigslist roommate. Yeah. I think that's the idea. Obviously it's not like a perfect model. Yeah. You know, Um, I'm sure there's situations where people have issues, um, but a lot of the renter base, I mean, it's pretty diverse, but from, a diverse group of people. I mean, when I talked to people um, in pad splits, there was one person who was like, oh yeah, like we totally like bonded. We kind of became our own little family. And then another person that was like, we didn't really talk. Like we just like all, we worked like 10 hours a day and we all had our head down and like went into our rooms. Like, you know, so it probably like depends. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, I, I think that it it is when you, are living with a roommate. I mean, that, that's always like, um, a fear. And I think like when you're trying to Uh find, when I've tried to find roommates on my own, like, I'm like, so do I background check myself? Like, I don't know. It's kind of like weird. 
that would be one uh, one potential factor that you'd want to consider if you're renting is, you know, are you comfortable with living with strangers? I mean, I did talk to one Padslip renter. She had literally never lived with roommates before. Um, she was 50. Yeah. Um, she had she had divorced a few years ago and she was moving from Atlanta to Houston for a job. Her friend told her about pad split and she was trying to, she was living in like an extended stay hotel and spending like thousands of dollars and like, cause she was trying to look for a house, but she needed to move before she bought the house. So she ended up moving into pad, a pad split and she lived there for a few months and saved like, she said she saved like thousands of dollars and that helped like basically add to the pot, you know, when she was putting her down payment and she actually went and bought a house. Her name is Friended. And there was another renter. His name is Zubike Akune. Uh, he is in his early 30s. He was a visual artist and a tech worker. He had actually lived in Houston like for a year before he moved into a pad split. But I was going to play a bit about his experience. I've been living in Houston about a year and some change now. Uh, I'm a visual artist. When I first moved to Houston, I was living downtown in a you know, nice apartment, just living a bachelor's life. Um, and then I started, I started kind of dabbling in my art a little bit more because I had the idea of like, if not now, then when. Um, and so when my lease kind of finally expired after being in that apartment for a year, I was looking around for options that allow me a little bit more flexibility because I wasn't sure where I wanted to live. I, I had thoughts of buying the apartment that I was living in. I wanted to build a house. I wanted to do all these different things. Um, and then a friend of mine uh, who was a nurse in Chicago had mentioned Pat Split to me. Um, and then I said, OK, I, I, I might look into it. Um, and she mentioned it to me because I traveled a lot. Um, I still do. And I and I would before I would I would stay in hostels when I was a little bit younger. And so I'm used to this kind of communal living, um, living with people who I don't know, kind of. It makes life a little bit more interesting for me. Um, so when I signed up for the pad split, uh, portal and, and platform, I thought it was an amazing idea. Um, it kind of made things a lot more simplified. Did it tie me into a long-term lease, um, help me save money. It, I didn't save like tons of money. Um, actually I just utilized the majority of the money that I didn't spend on rent and put it towards my art and my other creative passions. Um, so that, that was pretty successful. So so, you know, obviously he saves, he saved some money, um, and that, you know, he could put towards his art, but he also said like, it was a cool way just to sort of like expand his circles. Yeah. We cooked for each other. We had conversations with each other. We had arguments with each other and then we cared for each other when, we, when each other needed help. So that was a, um, a beautiful thing. Um, and at the new Pat split, I met the owner, uh, one day as he was coming by I just had a conversation with him. We started talking. I told him I was interested in maybe getting a passport of my own. Um, I, I was just sitting there crunching the numbers. I was like, oh, wait, if he does this, he does this, he does this. So from there, I looked online, um, signed up to be a host and started the, the process of uh, one day eventually becoming a host. What he's saying as a host, he's talking about he wants to eventually own his own property and have a pad split. So I caught up with him recently. We spoke a few uh -huh. months ago. He lived in two different pad splits. And then when his brother moved to Houston, they uh, got an apartment together at the Texas Medical Center area. Um, so he's he's no longer like in um, living in a pad split, but he, he does hope to eventually 
become a pad split host and kind of like rent out his property. So it's kind of like a cool, it could end up being like a cool sort of full circle story. Um, but I think that he speaks to, you know, there are some people who want to, in and kind of like what you were saying, like it's not just about a place to live. It's also about kind of trying to connect with different people, um, expose yourself to mm. different people. So I think that, you know, that, that part of co-living is a appeal regardless of whether in your one of your more affordable like pad split type units or like a fancy uh you know x company high rise somewhere my theory is that you know pad split's going to continue to expand or they said they have if the xco kind of these luxury style projects are successful i think it that it could also grow in Houston. I mean, I, I do agree with Susan, um, the Cushman analyst. She was saying, you know, that co-living will probably always remain sort of the niche uh, within the, the rental space, but it's still like a, I think it's a fascinating take or solution to try to create, you know, also to connect other people, kind of address this idea of increased loneliness in America while also being like, these are actually like affordable or attainably priced units uh, for a growing number of single and, and one person households out there. Yeah, it sounds perfect for certain situations. It does seem it does seem like the current customers are like a little bit different than the customers affordable housing serves, mm. especially like families or, you know, I, I would have a hard time imagining um, someone with kids in this situation. And it, and it does seem a little bit like transitory, which is cool, you know, because like, I think right. that is like a total need. It's interesting. Right. We have done like a podcast in the past about like co-housing, which it's, it's like funny, like these words sound like they should be the same thing, but they're actually like a little bit different. Co-housing would be like, you actually buy the property. It's almost like depending on the community, some it's almost like you buy a small cottage, but then there's also all these communal spaces and you buy into it being like, yeah, we're going to have dinner together with everyone in the community. This is a way to address like loneliness and like the atomization of society or like the one they're building in Houston, you buy your condo, but like you're committing to like, yeah, we're all going to make meals together. We're going to take turns in the community garden. We're going to share all these resources. That's why we're doing this, you know? And like those types right, of things are right. like more long-term and this seems like, yeah, it, it's perfect for someone who like, like you said, exactly. Like when I went to New York and I was like, you know, I, I, I want like a furnished space for a little bit of time. Want to be able to meet people. You draw a good uh, comparison to co-housing. And I actually did talk to the developers of, of co-housing uh -huh. Houston, which co-housing Houston, you know, Rebecca and I have both covered that. Um, and it's the first official co-housing project in Texas uh, where people are, you know, they're trying to make neighbors kind of like extended mm -hmm. family. And uh, David Kelly uh, with Concept Neighborhood, I remember talking to him at the groundbreaking of that. And he was saying, you know, co-housing, co-living, they're similar. Um, they, they're kind of in some ways addressing, you know, similar issues of trying to fight loneliness or create more connections again, have people like you know, disengage from this tech society and like find real connections. Um, but he was kind of put it as just the simple distinction is co-housing is more of like an ownership yeah. model. Like you said, maybe more long-term where co-living is rental. And actually, so Concept Neighborhood is, uh, you know, helping to develop the co-housing Houston. They're a, a Houston real estate firm. And actually Concept Neighborhood has toyed around with the idea 
of co-living in their, um, or co co-housing, co-living something within their, um, plant second ward project in the East end. And they actually like adjacent to the plant second ward, there is a small co-living community there already that one of the principals of concept neighborhood, Jeff Kaplan, uh, developed in partnership with another entrepreneur, Robin Goldstein. I think I'm saying their name right. And that's just like they had, it's called the plant house. They're like two 1800s era, like bungalows that they turned into like kind of flexible housing, like Airbnb co-living. I did talk to a renter there who was you know, on a work assignment for nine months, she said she couldn't find uh, Jenny Johnson. She said she couldn't find a, a rental like where she didn't have to. She wanted it to be by downtown under 2000 where she didn't have to sign a year long lease. And so she ended up finding the plant house that way. Um, so that's, you know, that's another example of some of these smaller scale co-living projects that are already here in Houston. You know, it's not the same like ground up as like the Exco or common or something like that. But it's, it's, you know, it is sort of serving the same need, but I think, you know, depending on um, how the sector progresses and, and, and depending on how the plant second war project develops, you know, who knows, maybe we'll see some variation of, of this and that project, um, you know, alongside the pad splits and the Exco's and the commons. Um but, but yeah, I do think it's more, it's, it comes across to me as more, um, short term. Oh, I guess I should say, um, the plant house too, right. Uh, at the time that we're recording this, there is actually a family that lives there. Oh. Um, it, it's just a young couple. It just goes to show. Yeah. It's just a young couple, you know, with, um, a small child, you know, I don't think it's like a big, a big family, but there are, you know, some co-living places that have bigger um bigger units maybe like a two or three bedroom okay um so i think in some situations maybe temporarily um but i do agree with your assessment that it seems like it's primarily geared towards single people or you know potentially just like a a couple but one thing that surprised me in reporting is like when i first was writing about this i was thinking like oh this is just a bunch of 20 somethings but then i actually found like there's people across the age spectrum who were in need all the way up to like in their fifties who were in need of this. And and when I interviewed, um, actually interviewed the CEO of common and she was saying she was in the elevator at one of their communities, like recently and ran into like this guy that looked like he was, you know, like a boomer and wearing like a suit or something. And, and he was like an attorney living in a <laughs> one of their co-living communities. So, so you never know. I mean, I, I would, it probably skews younger, but I, I think that there's a, a need, you know, of, of all ages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I, I definitely see that, yeah. especially like, yeah, like later in life when maybe you didn't choose to have kids or you no longer have kids or you're downsizing or, yeah, these stages of life where you don't need as much space. I can totally see that fitting into this really well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and Atticus LeBlanc has talked about from Pets, but, you know, there are, which I think he makes a good point. There are more, you know, there's this rising number of like single person, one person households yeah. in the U.S. Um, but his theory is, you know, our housing stock doesn't always match up. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I would say... um. The average renter um, for pad split, I believe they make like 30000 annually. So, I mean, these are like low income folks, but they're not always like on the brink of homelessness. Um, 
I think it can range. I mean, obviously I talked to someone who was about to buy a home and like someone who was in the tech industry and then it's probably like a spectrum. Um, but it does, I think their renter base overall does skew like lower income where I would say, I, t- I interviewed some of the developers behind the common um, Unity Montrose project. And they were saying from what they've heard, a lot of renters in those kind of newer co-living projects could afford to live elsewhere if they wanted to, but they prefer like the flexibility and like the community of co-living more. As Susan was saying in the beginning, there's sort of like different lanes for this trend, you know, appealing to different income levels and and types of, like you said, do you, do you feel more comfortable being in a, a big building where maybe you f- can step out and there's like, you know, more security and like, you know, or are you comfortable stepping out in the living room and then seeing like someone right there? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be cool to see how this takes off. I, I see it definitely meeting a need. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks so much for chatting with me, Rebecca, about this. Um, it'll be interesting to watch this trend develop. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. It helps us reach more people. If you ever have an idea for a podcast or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Marissa Lex 7 And I'm at R-A Shoots. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. And thank you, Scott Kingsley, for editing this podcast. Thank you to our print editors, Brian Rausch and Carol Motzinger. Thanks to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. Until next time. 